Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Amen. Let's go ahead and pass our baskets if you don't mind. And I know many uh, give via online, which is fantastic. On our website, super easy to, to, to make a donation that way as well. And don't forget, I know we put this up, you know, weekly, but we put all the verses and the, uh, the notes and all the stuff in the Bible app, free download. Just tap on more, tap events, and you should see our, our event, you know, let's just say Life Journey Church, and you can uh, follow along there with all the scriptures and stuff that we're going to take a look at this morning. So I think, and don't, don't hold me to it, but I think this might be the last Sunday we do this um, Walking by Faith series that we've been doing all fall long. Because uh, I think I want to, over the next couple of weeks, get into some Christmas stuff and, and talk about uh, just how dynamic the birth of Christ really was and how earth-shattering it really is. I mean, think about it. We have dated... We date everything by the birth of this baby. That's a pretty significant, just that alone is a pretty significant ordeal. Now, obviously, there's greater significance than just that. But we're going we're gonna to talk about that, talk about some of the prophecy involved, talk about, uh, Jim Schweitzer mentioned some of this a couple of weeks ago, just how impract- or impossible it would be for somebody to fulfill these very six or seven specific prophecies about Jesus, about his birth, about his coming, about his work. So we're going to get into that over the next couple of weeks, I think, leading up to Christmas. So I think this might be the last Sunday we do this. Don't hold me to it. We might, you know, not, I don't know. We'll just, we'll just see how it goes. But for those who are, are uh, joining in with us that haven't been a part of what's been going on here, for 13 or more weeks, it's really been longer than that. Craig spoke a week. We did a live stream last week from the office. So it's been about 14 or so, 15 weeks. We've been looking at this one verse in 2 Corinthians that says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And we've been trying to really wrap our minds around what that looks like, smells like, tastes like. What does it look like to actually walk by faith and not by sight? How is our faith strengthened? How do we get faith eyeballs, if you will? How do we walk by something we can't see? Well, maybe there's another sight. Maybe there's spiritual vision that we are to walk after, walk by, as opposed to just something that we can see with our natural eyeballs. And we're actually going to see today that very thing happen. It's so cool um, as we wrap up Genesis. So what we've done, our exercise for these 14-ish weeks is looking through, namely, the book of Genesis, but we could do the entire Old Testament, and asking the question, okay, we can see what the Old Testament is saying, creation, you know, rebellion, flood. You know, we can see these things. It's, they happen. We, we know they happen. We can see them. 
But is there something happening in the spirit, something happening in, in the spiritual world that is something much bigger, something much more impactful, something that can strengthen our faith today? And we've been trusting that Jesus was truthful when he said that if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote about me. So we're taking him at his word there in John 5, where he said the entirety of, at least in that passage, what Moses wrote, which was the first five books of the Old Testament, we're taking him at his word that it's all actually about Jesus. So this creation, guess what? It's really about Jesus. This fall, it's actually about Jesus. This flood, it's actually about Jesus, so forth and so on. And so we follow that questioning, that line of thought, and we've got a lot of positive uh, feedback from many who've been with us through this time saying things like, you know, I just have never seen the Old Testament like this. I've never seen Christ so clearly in his work in the Old Testament like this. And I have to admit, me too, because there's things that I've, you know, discovered over these last 16-ish weeks that I didn't know before. And it's just been amazing. It's just amazing what happens when we go to the Old Testament with the right question. The question being, what is this revealing about the Christ? Not simply, what is the moral to take away from this story about, you know, Abimelech or whatever. That's, that's okay too, but it's something bigger, not just by sight, but something by faith that we can receive. And so we've gotten all the way up through Abraham, who remember he was a picture of faith and circumcision, trusting Jesus, the invitation to trust him, and then being cut away from the, the inner man, from the outer man. And then his son Isaac, who is a picture of death and resurrection, just as once we, are, once we believe we go through circumcision and the old man is plunged into death and raised a new creation in Christ, then Isaac, remember he took Rebecca as his wife, and Rebecca, her name actually means attached, joined, secured. Once we have been raised a new creation, we are secured like Rebecca was to uh, um, Isaac. We are secured to Christ himself. Isaac and Rebecca had those two sons, remember, Jacob and Esau. Esau being the older, but the prophecy was that the younger shall serve the older. You have to go back to the podcast to check it out. But what we were seeing was that the older Esau is a picture of the outer man because he was hairy. He loved living outside, but Jacob was a, uh, he lived in the tents. He was content to live in the tents, a picture of the inner man. And that the inner man supplants, gains power, victory over the outer man by revelation. And we looked at that, you know, when we were looking at Jacob. And then Jacob had those 12 sons, which are all characteristics of our new heart, our new life in Christ. And one of those sons was Joseph. Joseph is a beautiful picture of the Christ as well, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, sent down to Egypt, a picture of the death, the rejection of the Christ and the death of the Christ. But he was raised up in Egypt to be the second in command of all of Egypt. And anybody who wanted to buy any sort of food during famine had to go to Joseph. Picture of if, if any of us in this famine in this world of righteousness, if any of us want life, if any of us want righteousness, true life, we can only get it through one source, and that's Jesus. In fact, Pharaoh says, if you want what I got, you got to come through Joseph. That's exactly what the Father says. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus, John 14. And so now we've even progressed to the point where Joseph and his brothers, who sold him into slavery, have, have reunited 
They've come together. There were some beautiful pictures and all of that, which, you know, you have to go back to the podcast to, to see. But what we're going to pick up today is basically the, the end of the story. Jo- Jacob, uh, Joseph has, uh, he's revealed himself to his brothers and Joseph says to his brothers, go and get my dad. Go back to the land of Canaan and get dad and you guys come here to Egypt and thrive in the midst of this terrible famine that is going on right now. He said there's been two years already and there's five more years of it. It's going to be a lot of famine. Go get dad. And so they send all these chariots and all these, you know, royal pharaoh wagons, if you will, you know, this big entourage, a caravan of, of, of royalty all the way to Jacob. Remember, his name is now Israel. They go all the way to Israel and they pick him up and they say, Dad, you're never going to believe this. <laughs> and so they get him and they bring him back. And we're going to see in the scriptures today that reunion of Jacob and Joseph and how sweet that was. And then some of Jacob's last words that he imparts upon Joseph, real fact, real things that actually happened. But what question are we asking? We're not just simply asking, okay, what were these historical figures and what they actually did? That's, that's, That's a good question. But what's our question? What is this revealing about Jesus? What is this revealing about the Christ? What is this by faith we can start to see of how Jesus interacts and moves and lives in his character with us and in us today? So uh, let's start. We're actually going to go back several chapters. We're, we're, we're going to be in chapter 48 for today. We're actually going to go back to 41 just for three verses, because without these three verses, today won't make any sense. And I'll, and I'll be honest, today might be a little controversial, um, because we're dealing with the question of how does salvation work? In other words, at what point is salvation imparted into the believer? Because most of us, if we've grown up in church, we would most... And I'm not saying it's a wrong answer, but we would say, well, because of the death of Jesus, because of the death of Jesus, we now have salvation if we believe in his death and what he's done. And I'm not saying that's a a, a wrong answer, but what we're going to see today is there's a better answer. And if you don't agree with me, we'll we'll have some time at the end to to chit chat and you can share your thoughts. How is salvation imparted? So we're looking through the Old Testament, trying to see the mystery here of Christ hidden. We're not going to see it with our eyeballs. We have to see it by faith to strengthen the inner man. So we're going back to Genesis 41. And this is the account of Joseph's sons. Joseph had two sons born to him while he was in Egypt. And this is what the scripture says. Now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Ashenath, the daughter of uh, Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn, this is really, really important. We've got to be together on this. He named the firstborn Manasseh, okay? <laughs> Manasseh. First is Manasseh. For, he said, remember how we've, we've learned through this, this journey that these names, they really mean something. Um, for 
He said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. So Manasseh means, it literally is Hebrew, for cause me to forget. Or forget, forget my troubles, forget my problems. So his firstborn, the most prized son of Joseph, his premier offspring, was named Manasseh. I mean, forget, I forget my troubles. God has caused me to forget all that I went through. Forget. Then he had a second son. So the first was Manasseh, forget. The second was Ephraim or Ephraim. And this means something too. For God has made me fruitful. So Ephraim means fruitful. Okay. Forget, fruitful. Can we follow those? All right, forget, fruitful. Manasseh, Ephraim. Forget, fruitful. The oldest, the premier, the first, the best, if you will, in that sense, was forget. Forget comes first, then fruitful comes second. All right? Now, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. So that was the birth order. Now, we're going to go to Genesis 48. We got to see that first, the birth order who Joseph says is most important. Joseph says, forget my troubles is most important and uh, uh, fruitful in the land is second important. All right? So let's go to 48, chapter 48, and these are only 22 verses. We're going to fly through them pretty quickly here. Now, it came about after these things, and what are these things? It's like chapter, you know, 46 and 47 where... Joseph, uh, Jacob has come down, you know, to Egypt and they're living in Egypt and, and he's met the Pharaoh and it's, it's just some good times. In fact, uh, Joseph's family are now in charge of all of Pharaoh's flocks. For some reason, Egypt, uh, the Egyptians despise uh, shepherds. And so he, Joseph says, hey, when he asks you what you are, say you're a shepherd. You're going to like, there's a market for that. Like you're going to get, you know, a great job. So, that's what happens. And they become the shepherds of all of Pharaoh's flocks. So, things are going well for them. Now, it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. And I don't know the age of Israel at this point, but he's old, obviously. So, he took his two sons. Who's the first? We can say this together. Who's the first? Manasseh. And who's the second? Ephraim. Or Ephraim. However you want to say it. With him. Forget. Fruitful. He takes them with him. All right? This is cool. When it was told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you. Israel. Remember, that's his name. Israel. His name was changed. Israel collected his strength and he sat up in bed. So, Manasseh first. Ephraim second. Then, Jake, then Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, he said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And this is what God said to me, verse 4. Behold, I will make you, what? Fruitful. Which name is that? Ephraim. I will make you Ephraim. I will make you fruitful and numerous 
And I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give you this land, this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And remember, when we see this word descendants or, uh, or whatever the other, another translation might use, that's actually singular. So it's seed, singular, which Paul in Galatians Remember, he brings it out, says this, really the fulfillment of this, yes, there were children of Israel. Yes, there was a real land, but that was all a shadow of Christ who is the seed. And in him, that's the, he's the promised land, right? So the prophecy was given, the, the, the God told Israel in the land of Uz, or in Uz, in the land of Canaan, that you will be fruitful. So fruitful is the promise. All right. Now, your two sons, this is still Jacob talking to Joseph, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Okay, that's a little weird. You're about to die. Why do you want to adopt my kids? Are mine. And he names them. Now, before I say it, you guys are sharp as tacks this morning. What do you notice that's different here when he names the kids? You see it? The order's reversed. What are you doing, Jacob? You old crazy man. What are you doing here, buddy? His na- the names are swapped. He says Ephraim, which means what? Fruitful. And Manasseh, which means what? Forget. Fruitful, blent, abounding, uh, life-bearing Ephraim. And Manasseh, forget my troubles, forget my problems, forget my sins, if you will. They are going to be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Now, that sounds weird. Why is he going to take the kids? I mean, they're little boys, maybe. I don't know how old they are. The whole emphasis is, you, Joseph, are so valuable. I see the hand of the Lord, what he's done to get us to this. Remember, Jacob spent how many years thinking that Joseph was dead, and now he's been air quotes, raised back to life, you know, again, the shadow of the Christ. You are clearly, God's hand is clearly on you. I am going to elevate your sons, not as my grandsons, but I'm going to elevate them to my sons. And so they shall receive the, the, the a full inheritance of mine that, that you would, you're going to receive, if you will. So he was elevating them to like a status of sonship, not grandsonship. All right. So it was a, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe it was a recognition of God's movement in this whole thing. That I'm going to elevate your sons to be my sons so that they receive the blessing. I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing God's work here. Now, this is cool. He switches the order. We all get that? We all see this? Is this a big deal? What's going to happen next? Verse 6. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. So in other words, once we got down here, you had more kids than those two. Those kids, they'll be yours. All right? I'm not, I'm not, I don't have enough you know, uh, seats at the table for all your kids. Um, but these two, when God did this, there's something special about these two boys. Maybe it's their names. I don't know. But he's recognizing the uniqueness of them. Your offspring that have been born after you, after them, they're, they're yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. So in, what he's saying is these, these two brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're actually going to, in this lineage, be the fathers of their 
siblings in the lineage of, of possession. Very unique, very weird. Now, verse 7. As for me, when I came to Padan, Rachel died. Time out. Why, why is Joseph, uh, Jacob, Israel, why is he invoking Rachel here? What is, I mean, you were just talking about sons. You were talking about uh, them basically being adopted by you. Why are you all of a sudden sort of, is he just old crazy guy, just changing subjects and he has no, you know, recollection of what he's actually saying? But he does. He changed to us, seems, by sight, he totally changed subjects here and starts talking about his dead wife. Let's follow this. When I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when uh, there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Now, this is several messages ago, and I don't expect you guys to remember all that happened here, but the summary is that this was the last child of Joseph, uh, Jacob, that was being born, and it was being born to Rachel, and Rachel was J Jacob's favorite wife. That's the one he wanted from the beginning. He got deceived by his father-in-law, and he got Leah, and you know these these maidservants. But Rachel was the one he wanted. Rachel's firstborn son was Joseph. That's why Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, the coat of many colors. But then the second son. The last son of Jacob and the, last, and the second son of, of, of Rachel, his name was Benjamin, right? Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. We don't know what the complication was, but something happened. Benjamin wasn't, Rachel's, wasn't Benjamin's first name. Does anybody remember what Rachel named Benjamin before Jacob named him Benjamin? Ben-Onai, maybe that's how you say it, I don't know. Ben-Onai, Ben-Oni, Ben-Onai. He names him, she names him Ben-Onai, which means son of my grief, son of my sorrow, son of my shame kind of concept. Because she's dying. His birth is producing my death. And so he was son of shame. Got that? Then she dies. Dad comes into the room. Because I guess at that point, dads didn't come into the waiting room, you know, which was happened to be on the side of the road, right? Because they're on their way to where? Bethlehem, which we'll talk about Bethlehem some more in a few weeks getting into Christmas. But on the way to Bethlehem, they stop on the side of the road. She gives birth. She dies. She names him in her dying words, son of my grief, son of my sorrow, Jacob comes in and says, no, we're not going to name him grief, sorrow. We're going to name him right hand. So Ben-Onai became Ben-Yamin, Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So this is really, really important. You have a picture here of son of sorrow, which I see Christ hanging on the cross in complete sorrow, complete uh, grief, agony, pain, and I see a death, like Rachel died. And then I see a new man, a new creation, a new covenant, a new beginning, son of my right hand, which Jesus was elevated to upon his resurrection. 
We talked about that. But it's not just Jesus. We are in Jesus. Before we were born of his spirit, we were son of the first Adam, son of sorrow, son of wickedness, son of shame. And then when we died with Christ, we were raised up in Christ, son of now the right hand of the Father in Christ. So what's really awesome is that we go from son of sorrow ourselves to now son of the right hand. And it was the death of Rachel in the uh, Genesis, whatever it was, 30-something, that brought that about. Now, who remembers, if you remember this one, you get like cake afterwards. What does the name Rachel in the Hebrew mean? Huh? No, that was Rebecca. That was, that was her mother-in-law, I'm guessing. Huh? Struggle? No. Lamb. 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 Huh? Yeah. Lamb. Now, 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 does that not send some little tinglings up your spine? It was the death of a lamb that turned sorrow into sonship, into right-handedship. Do you see that? That's amazing. The lamb died and Ben-Onai became Benjamin. Thousands of years later, the lamb of God was slain. And we in him go from son of sorrow, the first Adam, to now son of the second Adam, the last Adam, son of God's right hand. But why is he bringing this in? Why is Jacob referencing this. This isn't what they came to talk about, the death of of his mom. Well, let's continue. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? That sounds weird because he was just talking about the lads. Why does he say, who are these? Well, we'll see why in two verses. Joseph said to his father, these are my two sons whom God has given to me here. Bring them to me Joseph, uh, Jacob says, so that I might bless them. Now, here's why he asks, who are these? This is so cool. The eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. So he had heard about these sons. But his eyes were cataracts, you know, whatever it is, maybe just bad eyesight. You know, they didn't have glasses back then. Man, if it was me, I'd be stumbling around like crazy. I just wouldn't survive. I don't know what would happen. But uh, they, they, uh, he couldn't see. And so he must have maybe heard them, you know, the boys just rustling over in the corner or something. And he said, what is that? Who are these? And he said, these are the two sons that you've been talking about, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so he says, bring them over here so that I might bless them. So then Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and he embraced them. Now, I don't know if this is of the Lord or not, so I'm just going to throw that out there. But we've been talking about walking by faith and not by what? Sight. And we're about to see something extremely dramatic happen, even controversial, some might say, by a guy who cannot what? See, so I'm going to submit to you that what we're about to see is a beautiful, beautiful shadow picture foresight of what it really looks like to not live by sight, but to live by faith. 
as exemplified, as foreshadowed by a guy so old that he cannot what? See. But he has a great what? Faith. And we'll see in a second that he, re- he recounts what the Lord has said to him and for him, and he, which he already has. He said that the Lord would uh, told me that I'd have be fruitful and have all this. So he, by faith, is believing these things. But it's literally, literally a guy who cannot see, who is about to speak some things that don't make any sense to the scene. And I submit that if Jacob could have seen, it would, this would be not near as special, not near as significant as what I think it is with a, basically a blind guy who's unable to see about to speak some life-changing things in order over these two boys. I just think that is so cool, so cool. Not by sight, but by faith. What Israel is about to do is not motivated or engineered by what Israel could see. Because he was blind, he's dim, his eyes were dim. But knowing he knew something by faith deep within. So let's see what happens here. I just think that's so cool. Maybe that's just for me. I don't know. That's just awesome. Verse 11. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim, with his right hand towards Israel's left. Okay, so let's, we've got to envision this. So I'm Joseph, you, you are uh, J- Jacob, Israel. I've got my, uh, I've got Ephraim on my right side, okay, to present him to you, and he would be on your what side? Left. And conversely, yeah, Manasseh, I am presenting Manasseh to my dad, who's going to take him, adopt him, you know, for this blessing. I'm presenting him with my left hand so that it would be Jacob's what? Right hand, because who's born first? Manasseh. So, so Jacob, I mean, so Joseph is orchestrating this property for a guy who cannot see. He doesn't know who is who. And so Jacob, Joseph, sorry, Joseph, you try to say all these names. He presents them to Jacob so that all Joseph, all Jacob has to do is just reach out. And by default, Jacob's right hand would be upon whom? Manasseh, and his left hand would be upon whom? Ephraim, which would be a proper blessing because Manasseh is what? The oldest, the greatest. All right. Verse 13, 14. But Israel, this is Jacob, so don't get confused. There's not a third person here. But Israel stretched out his right hand. Let's follow. He stretched out his right hand and he crossed over. And he laid it on the head of Ephraim, or Ephraim, how do you say it, Ephraim, the what? Youngest. What are you doing, Dad? And he took his left hand, the lesser, because that's, if you don't pick up on that already, I'm sorry, I should have told you that. The right hand is the picture of strength, the left, not it's a bad hand, it's just not the strong hand. And he put his left hand on Manasseh, who was the older. So he's got a little, you know, crisscross action going on. Though Manasseh was the firstborn. 
He blessed, verse 15, Joseph. And this is what he says to Joseph as his hands are on the boys, blessing Joseph. He said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Beautiful. I mean, the intimacy there. And, and you have more than Jacob ever had. Jacob did not have a born again heart. He was unregenerate. Unlike you. I mean, you have infinitely greater intimacy with the Lord than Jacob had. So cool to see that intimacy and ours is off the scale in comparison to that. Verse 16, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. So he's asking God to bless the boys. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph, here's the drama, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. Joseph is displeased. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to put it over on Manasseh's head. Now, I don't know the physical, you know, stature of these men. What do we know about Joseph? I mean, Jacob. He's ill. He's old. He can barely see. Do we see him as like, you know, entering to the world strongman competition? No. Frail. That's what I get. That's when I think of him. Joseph, the second in command of all of Egypt. You know, I think of a pretty, you know, healthy guy. Well, Joseph says to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But the father refused and said, I know, I know. I just love this. This guy who can't see, barely can see, his eyes are dim. He's like, Joseph, you are living by what you can see. I am seeing something bigger here, something deeper here, something to live by here that cannot be seen. I know, my son, I know. He also will become great. So nothing wrong with Manasseh. We're not, we're not cursing him, right? He's not going to join the baker. Remember what happened to the baker, right? Hung, got hung. He, he's great. He, he's going to become great. He's wonderful. He will also be great. However, here we go. The younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Now, why is Jacob doing this? Well, we could say he's doing this because this is exactly what was done to what? Him. He was the younger that supplanted the older. A picture of the inner man being greater than the outer man. So that is like, well, this is what my mama did to me. This is what I'm going to do to you. This is what we're going to do. And maybe Joseph forgot about that. He didn't think about it. That might be all it is. I don't know. Because obviously Jacob doesn't know what we know about the Christ about what we're about to talk about. But he saw something by faith and he acted upon it, not by sight because the dude could barely see, but he sees something by faith and he acts upon it. Let's keep reading a second. Um, 
So, well, first, so let's see what he's saying. He's saying the younger brother shall be greater. The younger brother, his name means what? Starts with an F. That's a, they both start with an F. But it means fruitful, right? It means fruitful, abundance, life-bearing, right? If a tree is fruitful, it's got a good life in it. It's life-bearing. Got that? The fruitful, life-bearing son will be greater than the older son, whose name means what? Starts with an F. Forget. Forget's good. There's nothing wrong with Manasseh. There's nothing wrong with causes me to forget. But he's just not as great as fruitful. Life-bearing. Okay. So, the, uh, 20. He blessed them that day, saying, by you, is, uh, by you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So remember, see the order? The order is the younger before the older. F- fruitful in front of forget troubles. Thus he put Ephraim, Ephraim, before Manasseh. So there is a priority swap. There is a significance swap. Last two verses. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So he gives Joseph, again, this is that, what I was saying earlier, he recognizes that something very significant the Lord has done with Joseph, raising him up to power, and he's giving him an extra bit of the inheritance. Okay, so here's the que- here, couple questions we're going to try to answer. We're going to wrap this up. Hopefully this is going to make some sense. First question, why did jo- jo- Jacob, Jacob bring up Rachel's death? What's the point of that? Why did it's kind of, it seems out of character, like it, out of narrative. Like it, it just didn't seem to fit to me. Maybe it fit for you, but it just seems out of left field. Why does he bring this up? What's the whole point? Second question, what is the whole point of Ephraim being greater than Manasseh? What's the whole re- reason? What's the, how are we seeing Christ in this of Ephraim fruitful, life-bearing, greater than forget my troubles, forget my problems, forget what holds me back. Why? What's the point of that? Is Manasseh unimportant? Has Manasseh been cursed? No. Is he insignificant? Not at all. But he is lesser now than his younger brother, Ephraim. Here's what I want to, to, to suggest to you. I suggest... That Manasseh, whose name means forget all my troubles, forget all of what holds me back, forget all of my, let's maybe use, um, use we, where we would use like sins and difficulties, iniquities. His name, who, which means forget all my troubles, sins, iniquities, is a picture of the cross itself. And it's a picture of the very work of Jesus on the cross when by his death, which came first, Manasseh came first, by his death, he removed, he forgot all of our what? Sins, iniquities, troubles, etc. Do you see that? In the death of Christ, Hebrews very specifically says that in his death once and for all has wiped away 
the sin of the world. John says, in, uh, the, John the Baptist says in, in the book of John, that he says, behold, the Lamb of God, the Rachel of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses anymore. Hebrews chapter 10 says that the Holy Spirit himself testifies, quote, I, in this new covenant, I remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. So the death of Jesus was the removal, the forgetting, the forgiveness, the uh, elimination of, from memory, all of our trouble that we had before God. Every last sin was eradicated by the work of Jesus. Manasseh, I'm suggesting to you a picture of. It came first. Manasseh came, forget the sins, forget the troubles, came before fruitful, just as the death of Jesus came before what I suggest Ephraim is a picture of. So why does he bring up Rachel's death? I think it's because son of sorrow, he's forgotten. The sorrow that we had in the first Adam, it no longer exists. The blood of Jesus, remember, it was the cupbearer that survived. The cupbearer lived as a picture that the blood of Jesus was greater than the judgment of the Pharaoh, the judgment of God. The blood of Jesus was greater. It washed away. It took away. And so the death of Rachel is a picture of the son of sorrow being completely forgotten. The Bible never refers, never refers to jo- uh, 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 Benjamin as Benoni ever again. If it wasn't for that history, you know, uh, account, historical account, we would never even know that was his name because his name was a new name, Benjamin. So the death of Rachel, the death of the lamb, erased his past history, his name, and a new name was given. I think that's why he brings up Rachel, to show that something significant has happened, something greater has happened as a result of the death. So I suggest that Ephraim, Manasseh is a picture of the cross itself, the removal, the forgetting of the sin of the world. It is done. The Holy Spirit says, I remember your sins and lawless deeds no more. Either that's true or it's not true. We don't forget them all that well. But apparently the Holy Spirit no longer remembers them because of the work of Christ on the cross. What about Ephraim, who was born second? How, why is he now more important than Manasseh? Well, his name, remember, it means fruitful. It means life-bearing, abundance. And I think that it's a picture of the resurrected, resurrected life of Christ now in us who believe. Because his, his name, Ephraim, means fruitful, life-bearing, life-giving. Paul even calls the spirit in us the, spirit, uh, the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, those are all fruit that's offspring, that's result of the Spirit of Christ that lives in us. And so I'm suggesting to you that Ephraim, whose name means fruitful, life-bearing, I think he's a picture of the new life that we now have in Christ. Christ's life itself now in us. So the work on the cross, I think, is Manasseh. Why is... Joseph, Jacob, placing something 
above, if that's true, if Manasseh is a picture of the work of Christ on the cross, why is he putting the abundant resurrected life as a greater priority over the death of Christ? Why would he do that? Is, is there something more important than the death of Christ? And we should all say, yes. What is more important than the death of Christ? The resurrection of the Christ. The abundant life of the Christ that now is in us. You see, that's where in Christianity we, 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 we check out. We don't, we've not embraced that. We've not received that. The symbol, for example, of Christianity is a what? The actual physical symbol is a what? A cross. I'm not against that. But what I'm seeing the, the Spirit say is that the cross, as significant and it's a, he says of Manasseh, Manasseh is great. There's nothing wrong with Manasseh. There's, there's just something better than Manasseh. And that's Ephraim, a life, a new life that has come. Life-bearing life. So the work of Jesus on the cross isn't unimportant by, by no means. It's not unimportant. Just like Manasseh. Manasseh wasn't cursed. He's going to have all this blessing too, but there's something greater. The greater work is the resurrection and the resurrected life that's implanted into us, which is, I believe, Ephraim is a picture of. And so J Joseph, who couldn't see with his eyes... He knows the names, and by some sort of faith foreshadowing movement of God in his spirit, he says, no, 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 look. Yes, one came before the other. The death of Christ came before the resurrection of Christ, of course. But let's not be mistaken here. The resurrected abundant life is, is greater than the death of the Christ. Because if it not be for Jesus being raised, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then we're just fools. But because he is raised, we actually have a life within us. This is how Paul talk, calls it, talks about it. Three verses and we're done. Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, Paul's building this argument to say, in a few verses before he says, you know, I don't know anybody who would die for a righteous man, who would do that? I don't really know anybody who would. Maybe there's somebody. I like he said, maybe, maybe there's somebody who would. But it's, it's hard for us to like see someone lay their life down for a, a righteous man, for a good guy. And then he draws this amazing contradiction, or this amazing comparison when he says, but God demonstrated his love for us in that when we were yet sinners, not good, not righteous, I don't know anybody who would lay their life down for a good guy, but God laid his life down for a bad guy, sinners. While we were, God demonstrated while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, death. He died for us. Sinner, son of sorrow, Christ died. Got that? Verse 9. Much more than... Wait a second, Paul. Hold on. This is, this is a little weird. You just said Christ died for us, the death of Christ. And then you say, but wait a minute, there's something much more. What could be much more than the death of Christ, Paul? This is feeling a little weird here, Paul. I thought the death of Jesus was the big deal, the ticket, the only thing that gets us into heaven, the death of Jesus. 
much more than having now been justified by his blood, the death, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So the death of Jesus brought reconciliation, which is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. The world, all the sin of God's accounting has been expunged, removed. There is no sin left on anyone's account, apparently, according to Paul. So is it salvation when someone's sins are forgiven? See, most of us, myself at least, would say, well, of course, that's when salvation happens, when your sins are forgiven. Well, that's not at all what Paul is saying. He's saying that the blood of Jesus, it brought about uh, 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 reconciliation. But here's salvation. Salvation is through him. Well, wait a second, Paul. Can you explain that a little bit better? Wouldn't it be nice if Paul had a verse right after it that started off with four and explains it? Well, we're in luck because there is. If you've never heard me say this, these are your favorite three letters in the New Testament, especially Paul's writing. Because when he says for, he is explaining something that's a little bit maybe difficult to understand just before. So this verse is the same verse we just read, but it's explained simpler. And we're thankful for Paul for doing this. For, let me break this down like a fraction, Paul says. While we were enemies, he already said that, we were enemies, right? We were son of sorrow. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Can you get any clearer than that? The death of his son brought reconciliation. Let's define that. There is nothing left on the table to stand between us and God. Us, humanity, and God. Hebrews chapter 10, chapter 9 and 10. By his one death, he has been offered up as a single offering for all time, once and for all. We were enemies, been reconciled to God through the death of his son, but wait a second, much more. There's something better. There's something bigger than the death. Having been reconciled, what was that through? The death. We shall be saved by his what? Life. So what is it that imparts salvation? Is it the death of Jesus? It isn't. It's the life of Jesus, the resurrected life. And you say, okay, well, you're splitting hairs here because can you have the life without the death? No, of course not. You can't have Ephraim without Manasseh because Manasseh came first. Ephraim wouldn't have been second if you didn't have Manasseh. But there's a greater. The greater is not the death of, of, of Jesus. It's the life. We're not saved by his death. We're saved by his life actually coming into us. So what brings salvation? Is it death or is it life? Well, it's, it's, it, we could say yes. It's both. But it is, it is, it, what I hear Paul saying is the death of Jesus is spectacular. It's incredible. Who would do such a thing? Who would die for sinners? No one. But his death is incre- it's incredible. His death reconciled every person in the planet to him. He has forgotten our sins, Manasseh. He has, they've been eradicated from the very mind of God from his death, the death of his son. What could be better than that? Well, apparently Paul says something is much more than that. His life now being in you by faith in him.
What's more incredible than Jesus dying for the world? It's his life actually being imparted into you upon your faith in him. The death of Jesus is incredible, but there's something much more. Manasseh, he's awesome, but there's Ephraim, something much more. Jesus now in you. His death on the tree caused your sins to be forgotten, but his resurrected fruitful life in you is what causes you to be saved. So salvation isn't merely Jesus dying for sins. Yes, he did. It's incredible. Let's not take anything away from it. But that was Friday, if you will. Good Friday. But what came after Good Friday? Resurrection what? Sunday. His salvation is his life in you. His fruit, his life, his abundance, his joy unspeakable, full of glory in you. So what's the, what does that matter? What's the big deal about that? Well, we're not, as believers, we're not walking around this planet just simply acknowledging the God of creation having died and take away our sins. That's amazing. That's awesome. Manasseh, greatness is going to come from that. But there's something even better. Every step you take in this world, you're actually taking a step with the life of God in you. I bet if we were to poll every Christian in this city or in this county, in this country, and we were to ask, do you believe, believer, (laughs) do you believe that the very life of God is pulsating in you? I don't know. I don't think we would get a very high percentage on that. Maybe even in this room, we might be like, "Mm, I'm not really so sure about that because this is what I see. I see my attitude towards this coworker. I see my attitude towards my spouse. I see my attitude towards, that's what I see. Well, maybe it takes an old man who can't see anything at all to teach us a lesson that the resurrected life in you is greater than just simply the sin being removed from your account. Sin has been removed from the account of the world. Is all the world saved? No. Only those who receive life into them. So let us not walk around this place simply glad, and we should be, and we should be more, about our sins being removed. That's fantastic. But Joe Schmo down the street who doesn't believe in God, his sins have been removed. He's been manassed, if you will. You have the very life of God in you, joined to you, one with you. And that, my friends, is walking by faith. That takes quite a bit of trust to say, you know, I can't, I can't see that. I can't see that. I don't know if you can see I can't see that with my eyeballs. But walking by faith is walking into the office tomorrow morning with the confidence that in you is the same one who flung the stars into space. In you, in that marriage that you're in, that deadbeat parent, you know, deadbeat spouse, whatever that looks like, in you is the very life of God, Ephraim, a picture of, pulsating, bearing fruit through you. Salvation is not just the death, it's the resurrection of the Christ. So our journey marker this morning is walking by faith is embracing, yes, of course, we're not taking anything away from the death of Christ. Of course, it's embracing 100% forgiveness. And here's the deal. Most Christians don't even embrace that. True? I didn't for 31 years. Most don't even embrace that. Most people think that when we sin, we've got to get those sins under the blood. How are you going to do that? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. You're going to kill Jesus again? It's once and for all. So most don't even get this, right? 
But it's embracing 100% forgiveness, but even more, even greater walking by faith is embracing our 100% new life with Christ. So when you're flipping French toast Saturday morning for the kids, it's not just you. It's Christ in you that you're living by. When you're working on taxes in a couple of weeks, because the new year's coming and well, maybe a couple months, whatever it is, it's not just you. It's Christ in you that is working on taxes with you. We're living in dependency upon him. Remember when Joseph stood before Pharaoh? He was dependent upon God because, I mean, it's Pharaoh. You better depend upon the Lord then. But remember when he was in prison and a couple of inmates came up and asked him a question? He was depending upon the Lord then too. It is 100% forgiveness, yes, but even greater, there's a life within you. And if we come to terms with that, I think it changes everything. We go from sort of Friday Christians, right, in the gospel, Good Friday, Jesus died for us, you know, hey, that's fantastic. But Sunday is even greater. We go to, oh my God, a revelation that he is in me, that he is with me. He's never going to leave me. And though I face difficulties and struggles that I would never wish on the next person, my worst enemy, he's with me, he's in me, and I'm leaning upon him every single day. Do you realize, last statement, that the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD, the destruction of the Jewish temple, the whole point that that happened is because God sought to remove the reminder of sins needing to be forgiven? Because every single day, Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 9, every single day at the temple there was more sacrifices and sacrifices and sacrifices. It was a daily remembrance of sins to be forgiven. So God, by his great kindness and mercy, he destroyed that thing. He destroyed his own temple. Why? Because he has a new temple. Who is the new temple? Raise your hand if you believe. You are the new temple. He lives in you. He doesn't need something made by stones to live in. Why? Because he lives in you. How could the God of all creation live in you? Because you're 100% clean, 100% forgiven. So let's not just stop there. Let's embrace Ephraim. There is fruitful life in me. Any thoughts and questions before we uh, wrap up? Um, and take off for the morning? Wow, that's pretty close. Yeah, oh, sorry. Um, so I think that there are uh, two big messages um, to be had from this passage in Genesis. Uh, the first, I think, is for unbelievers kind of giving a pathway to um, God. Like, you follow, uh, uh, I guess... Benjamin's birth, then you die, and you're born again, and that's kind of the basics, but then there's a second meaning, in my opinion, which is kind of for believers, mm-hmm. look deeper into it, um, which is, like you were saying, comparing um, uh, Joseph's sons with um, Jacob's sons, mm-hmm. and basically, like, what I was seeing anyway, uh, maybe I'm projecting a little bit, but if you kind of, like, Look at the firstborn and then look at the uh, secondborn of both um, generations. Both generations, uh-huh. yeah. 
I mean, what you're basically, I, I'm kind of, uh, I added a couple words, but um, basically what I see is like God telling us, forget that you were a son of iniquity, mm-hmm. but be fruitful for you are now a son of my right hand. Amen. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Amen. That'll preach right there, boy. Yeah. That's good. Forget it. There's something greater. Amen. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? But what about? I'm always curious how you're defining the word saved because I guess for a lot of my time, I had salvation pretty much equated with justification and forgiveness of sins. Yeah. So. I think that's a great question. And I don't know if I have all the answer to that. <laughs> but it's clear if I could click back that, uh, that Paul doesn't exactly make it that. Uh, how would you say, um, equative, right? So we were enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his son. So that happened, amazing, but there's something more. Having been reconciled, so that did happen, there was reconciliation, which again is consistent with what he says there in Second Corinthians 5, we, and I think this we who, I think this is we who believe, shall be saved, rescued, redeemed, uh, shall be um, delivered by his life. And so there's definitely a distinction I see Paul saying, and I could be wrong. I mean, I, I, I agree with you that it's like, I thought it was like, you know, Jesus died for sins, we believe in his death, and of course the resurrection, and you know, we're justified, saved, sanctified, blah, 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 all those fancy words. But I just hear Paul breaking it down a little bit more differently to say the death of Christ, it, it leveled the playing field in the sense of no sin is, is, is an issue anymore. But what brings salvation? What saves you? What actually exits you from the domain of darkness and puts you into the domain of the beloved son? What I'm hearing him say, it's, it's the very life of Christ in you. Um, not simply his death, but it's the death, of course. But there's a greater thing that must be received, his life. I don't, I don't know if that answers the question, because that's a great question. I think is worth pursuit to say, like, what, what does this mean? Um, what have I thought that might not be heretical or anything like that, but just isn't as clear as what maybe the apostles actually used to teach? Yeah. Just to add something else to that, Paul also says in First uh, Corinthians, um, uh, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him uh, to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of, of his cross. So, yeah. I mean, to me, that's saying like what you were saying, everything has been reconciled to him. And I mean, whether in heaven or on earth, that kind of says to me, even the devils have been reconciled to him. Now, whether that means they're, I mean, I don't think that they're saved. Well, no. See, I think that's the deal is does reconciliation equal salvation? And I think if you read 2 Corinthians 5, I could be dead wrong. Take it for yourself. I think the answer is no, because he says, Again, it's like the fourth or fifth time I've quoted this verse. God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. Then he goes on to say, and we, we who, the apostles, we, his little cohort of traveling men, 
we have been given this message. We are ambassadors. We've been given this message of reconciliation and we're presenting it to you so that you can be reconciled to him. How does that happen, Paul? By faith in him. For he who knew no sin, verse 17, or 21, became sin so that we might become his righteousness. Well, how does that happen? That's by faith. So I see a complete reconciliation of God to all men through the death of Christ, as Hebrews talks about. All, men, all sin for all time for all people eliminated. Because what else must God do in order to forgive sins? It must be shedding of blood. Well, that happened once and for all. Now the question is, are you going to be reconciled to him by, as Paul says there in 2 Corinthians, by trusting it, by believing it? So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but I see I, it definitely is different than what I have just simply heard in the, from the pulpit, you know, growing up sort of a concept. Yeah. Yeah. You take it up. Yep. So it could be like the check is in the mail. Are you going to, you know, open the mailbox and receive it? Sort of deal. And, and I don't know if we'll ever fully grasp the exact intricacies of the infinite mind of God on these things. I think the biggest, the big point is let us not stop simply at celebrating the death of Jesus. Let's celebrate it. Let's toast the cup and drink the, the bread. Let's celebrate. But let us live by and walk by a life within. Did you have your hand, April? Yeah. It, and just like what they were saying, I mean, it sounds like it's the, the second. You can't have the second without the first. However, and, and uh, Ryan just said what I was thinking, that everybody was based, everybody was reconciled, but it doesn't mean that they're going to accept that. Right, no. That truth. So, because is it, Universalism that right. everybody's going to go to heaven? Right. Because if that's the case, then, you know, why did he yeah. come back alive? Right. Right. I mean, Paul would be the worst universalist ever, you know, if, uh, right. if, if, if that were the case. He'd be, a, but yes, yeah, so that's definitely not what I see the scripture teaching. Uh, so reconciliation or forgiveness of sins does not equal salvation. Salvation is receiving life. But you must have reconciliation. The death of Jesus had to happen before. Manasseh had to be born before Ephraim could come, or else Ephraim wouldn't be the second born. Yeah. I like um, John, John <coughs> about the vine and the branches. Yeah. Um, you know that he, he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes. You know, and he, he goes and further. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, if you read this without knowing you know, what you've been preaching, you, you'd think it's conditional. If you follow my commands. Then, yeah. But at the end of that chapter, and he talks about the world hating the disciples, and if they hate me, they're going to hate right. you, and so forth. But at the very end, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify and he talks about, you're my friends, mm -hmm. no more right. servant, master, right. because 
that relationship, you don't know what the master's about. Yeah. But I tell you my friend because you will know. Right. Yeah. And there's also, remember, m lack of perfect clarity, because that's before the cross. Everything he says, parables and lack of, that's why he tells the disciples to teach. And so that's why we read in the apostles' writings, the clarity, like this right here, you know, clarifies. Not that it trumps what Jesus says, it just clarifies because he was speaking in parables and speaking in mysteries still because it was before the cross. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's a greater. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. All right, last thought here, and we're going to have to head up. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Well, you know, certainly worth pursuing and thinking and, and um, uh, studying, you know, asking the Lord for wisdom as we walk by him. But I just encourage us at the end of the day to realize that there's life within you, life within you, and that life within you is his life. And your life joined together. And let's live by it. Let's stand and close. Father, we thank you for today and for how good you are to us, how merciful, how gracious, how abundant. And, and I love questions and, and but what about sin? Because we don't know all the answers, but we're, we're curious and we're seeking and we're asking your spirit to guide us. But at the end of the day, we want... We want what you want for us, and that is us getting to know you, getting to know your heart, getting to know and trust you at the core. So, Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that the blood of Jesus worked, that we are, our sins are forgotten. But we thank you, Father, that there's something even greater than that, and that is that the resurrected Christ lives in us. Wow, wow, wow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.